All right, let's get after it. If you have a Bible, Hebrews chapter 10 is where we will be, Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, if you don't have your Bible with you, if you didn't bring your scriptures, uh, like the good enablers that we are, there's a hardback around you uh, if you would like to open up with us. Hebrews 10, uh, we're in the middle, not in the middle, toward the end now, hallelujah, of our uh, series on Hebrews. And so they said it couldn't be done, um, but we are approaching the, the end here. Uh, our text this morning is going to be a very appropriate one for us. Uh, it's all about what happens when what we've been talking about for the last three chapters or so, Jesus, his sacrifice, his high priesthood, what happens when all of that collides with a group of people? What happens to the community that's created by that? What do they look like? What do they do? Why do they do the things they do? And so I think it's appropriate for us for a couple reasons. Um, primarily, we just ended this last Tuesday our five weeks of corporate prayer and fasting. Um, and so for some of us, this is our first time to ever fast. Uh, I've heard lots of different reactions and experiences, most of them good. Um, I, I've shared my experience before. Uh, I had no divine revelation. I think I, I said this in my email Wednesday. No divine revelation during the fasting where I went from hunger to Jesus in front of me, speaking to me. Um, but it was a good reminder that we are more dependent on Him and His guidance and His direction than we are even on physical food, uh, which is a basic building block of life. Uh, very necessary, but, but it's more important that we hear from Him, that we follow Him. Uh, so we'll end, we ended that this last Tuesday. Uh, you remember five weeks ago I called us to this time of prayer and fasting. We talked out of Acts 13 where the early church in Antioch gets together, they pray, they fast, and the Spirit tells them, send Paul, send Barnabas. And then because of that, you and I are here. The whole world is flipped upside down. And so we're at a very important time in our church where we can choose to maintain or keep going. And so I want us to pray and fast together. And so out of this, I'm going to be leading a small group through a very focused evaluation of everything we do here as a church. Um, you're more than welcome to join us if you'd like to. Come talk to me about it. If not, just pray for us as we do this. We'll keep you updated uh, as we walk through it. Um, also, we will be having a meal together today. Um, and so in a sense, we're breaking the fast together as a church community. So very appropriate for us. Um, I love how the Spirit kind of divinely, it seems, providentially guides our schedule uh, to where it seems over and over again, certain texts that we're in line up to where we are as a church and the seasons that we're walking through. So we'll pick it up in chapter 10 here, where we left off last week uh, in verse 19, all right? Hebrews 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Okay, I want to point out as we get started here, kind of the structure of this text. Um, there's this very specific division and movement here in just these few verses. Uh, you'll see at the start here in verse 19, if you're out of the ESV, which I'm working out of, uh, it says, therefore, brothers, since blank, blank, blank. And then if you keep reading in verse 21, and since, blank, blank, blank. You have two phrases here fronted by this word since. 
He's saying, hey, the reason is this. Because of this. And then he moves on, and there's a new front to the sentence in verse 22. Let us draw near. Let us. And then if you keep reading in verse 23, let us hold fast. And then again in verse 24, let us consider. So notice what's happening here. You've got, without even getting into the details, you've got since, since, let us do this, and let us do this, and let us do this. There's this movement here that there's a reason, there's a cause and effect. There's a cause and effect. And so without even getting into the details of this text, which we will, we see kind of a principle here, a movement here, an underlying theme that the Christian life, um, the, the Christian lifestyle, we could say, is a theological reaction. It's a theological reaction. So I know, forgive me, there's a five-syllable word in there. Uh, so I know some of us are checking out already. Don't check out. Um, we could say it like this. How we live, or, or we live the way we do because of who he is. Are you tracking me there? We live the way we do because of who he is. Since he is this, and since he has done that, we do this, and we do this, and we do this. This is a, a challenging thing to realize. It's all throughout the scripture. So Ephesians 5, one of Paul's core kind of ways he frames most of his letters is this. Ephesians 4, actually 4.1. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. He says, here's the gospel. Here's the good news of what Jesus has done for us on one side. And I want your life to balance out with it. To weigh appropriately next to it that you would live the way that you do, and it would, be, it, would, it would make sense. It would be appropriate. You would be able to explain it by saying, oh, that makes sense. Jesus died for them. God sent the Son and works through the Spirit. The Christian life should not make sense outside of the gospel. Follow me here, because I think it's an important thing. No one should be able to explain the way that you live outside of anything else than God revealing himself through Jesus on the cross, dying for our sins, raising again, and sending us on a mission. There's a very true principle in the scriptures. Um, so I got a bank account statement in the mail a couple days ago. I think the scriptures say, somebody should not be able to read my bank account statement and be able to give an explanation for the way that my money spent. Other than that, Jesus has saved him. He's on a mission. He's been sent out as the Father sent Jesus. No one should be able to, to look inside our household at the way that our families run, the way that we talk to each other, forgive each other, things like that, and have any other explanation. You see, often Christianity is presented as almost an accessory to an uh, outfit that we already have. Like, just add this on to your life. This will make things better. When in reality, it's, I mean, it's a whole new wardrobe. I mean, it's a whole new life. It's a whole new way of living. It's, it's not something that you just add on. It's something that changes everything. I was challenged recently to think through the relationship between Jesus and his apostles, between the disciples and the Gospels. So, so Jesus finds them and calls them, and they leave everything and follow him. And I was challenged that, that you and I, are, I mean, our life should be no different than that. So if you were to meet um, one of the, the disciples, and, and they had left their jobs, left their families, followed this young Jewish prophet who claimed certain things and did certain things. The only way you could explain that is by saying, look at Jesus. Jesus is saying these things and doing these things, and so they are following him. They are following him. That's why they're doing the things that they are. It should be the same for you and I. The Christian life is a since, since, let us do this, and let us do this, and let us do this. It's a, it's a theological reaction. 
And so he gives us here, he gives us two things, recaps really of what we've been talking about for the last three chapters or so, and then he moves on to how the community is shaped because of those. So we'll look at this first one here, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. He says we have, the first thing that we have here is a sacrifice. We have a sacrifice. Jesus dying on the cross, his blood being shed. Well, remember he set up in the last few chapters this comparison between the system of sacrifices in the Old Testament and then Jesus' sacrifice, where God had set up this constant, every day, every year system where there was bloodshed, where there was killing, um, where people understood that their sins had stained them, had made them dirty. And for them to approach God, to enter into his presence, they needed blood. They needed a sacrifice to wash them. And Hebrews has consistently said, Jesus is that sacrifice. All of that old system had been setting us up to understand what Jesus was doing when he died on the cross. He says, since we have confidence to enter because of his blood, a new and living way, you and I have a way available now to enter into his presence. We've seen this. He set up over these last few chapters this, this image of history of the tabernacle, right? And so you have the courtyard, you have the um, first holy place, and you have the most holy place. And he said what? Our high priest has gone in to the holy places. We're waiting for him to return. He takes this image, this picture, and puts us in history on it. And for us to enter in, we need a sacrifice. And now a way is available for us to draw near, chapter 4, and find help, mercy, grace in our time of need. A way is available. And his blood is powerful, as the hymns say. His blood is powerful and able to purify, to wash us in ways that the old system wasn't able to do that, able to cleanse the conscience, able to objectively deal with sins. So we have a sacrifice. Since we have confidence because of the blood of Jesus, if you keep reading, verse 21, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, he says also we have a high priest. We have a high priest. We have one who represents us before God. We have one who represents us before God. As our high priest, Jesus presents his sacrifice to God on our behalf. On our behalf. And so we've seen again um, the idea of the um, high priest in the Old Testament on the Day of Atonement going into the Holy of Holies, presenting a sacrifice for the sins of his family and his people. And now Jesus has gone into the actual Holy of Holies, heaven itself at God's right hand, to present his sacrifice for us. He also then washes us with his blood. So in a sense, Jesus, I mean, here's the radical idea in Hebrews. The high priest is the sacrifice. I mean, no one had ever tried to connect those dots before or connect that together. And Hebrews saying, check this out. Check who Jesus is. He is the sacrifice for our sins. He's at the same time our high priest. He's the resurrected one who takes that sacrifice to God, who has entered into the holy places, you remember from chapter 9 and chapter 10, to prepare the way for us. His blood washes us, that we can approach God, we can find him. And so again, this is all a recap of what we've been doing for the past few chapters, the past five, six weeks. Um, we've gone way into sacrifice and blood and all those themes in the Old Testament and Hebrews. And now he wants to say, because of all that, because of all of these truths, Here's what happens when a group of people collide with that. Here's what happens when, when human beings meet face to face with those realities. Verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart 
in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. He's going to give us, in these three lettuce statements, um, three very specific stances in life. Three very specific actions that are created in the community of those who believe and understand these truths. The first is worship. Let us draw near. This is a, a technical term used in the Old Testament um, for kind of a call to worship. This is what you'd say to start the service, to start the um, gathering. You'd say, draw near to worship. Draw near, press into God. And so one of the maybe more tragic things that ever happened to this English word worship was when it became a genre for music. Um, so, I mean, that's largely what it's become. It's, it's become, I mean, you've got pop music, you've got rap music, you've got rock music, you've got oldies music, you've got the devil, I mean, country's music. Uh, <laughs> then you've got, then you've got worship music. I mean, it's its, it's own genre, the, the music store. When, when worship is, is really a much larger category than that. And so, I mean, it's often said the word worship comes from the English word worthiness. To worship is really a life thing. It's really holistic. It encompasses everything that we do. Um, it's a life, we could say, that proves God's worthiness. That says, He is worthy. He is exalted. So He's worthy of what? My time. He's worthy of my actions, my speech, my money, my relationships. He is worthy. And with that, we worship Him. And so you can worship Him with music, or you cannot. And you can worship him with your money, or you cannot. And you can worship him with your speech, or you cannot. I mean, this is why we use examples of eating can be a very worshipful experience. I mean, there's a way in which we can eat that would be kind of self-gratification, self-glorifying. But there's a way that we can eat when we bite into that burrito, and we worship the God who created such things. And we worship the God who provides us nutrients and sustenance. There's a, a way, and, and so, I mean, I, I've said this jokingly, but I think napping can be a very worshipful experience. And I'm partly serious in that. I mean, worship is this large category, is what you're doing saying he's worthy. Saying he's where I find life and joy and peace. He deserves everything that I have. Let us draw near. In the Christian community, worship is created. And so this includes singing. I mean, that's kind of a verbal outworking of that praise, but it, it encompasses everything. It encompasses all of life. Praying, reading scriptures, worshiping together, singing songs. And so a couple ways this works itself out more specifically in our lives day to day is one, um, the Christian community approaches God. We, we approach <coughs> him. I mean, this is implicit in the, the phrase here, draw near to him. We've talked throughout Hebrews about the temptation to run away from God and we should be running to him. And so he says, in the, in the Christian community, these truths, the truth that you are accepted in front of God, that there's a sacrifice that has been made for your sins, you are atoned for, this truth should draw Christians to approach him. To come to him in prayer. To come to him in the scriptures. To seek him and to look for him and to find him and to ask him to come. Because a way hasn't been made open. We are approachers. We approach. And then we also enjoy we enjoy. Joy is very much intimately linked with this idea of worship in a way that, that sometimes is overlooked. I mean, you worship something because of the pleasure and the joy and the value that you find in it. 
And so, I mean, you could extrapolate this out to, I mean, sporting events. Um, so, I mean, we'll have a spaghetti lunch here in just a bit. If you sit down across from somebody and talk to them for, let's say, an hour, you will be able to probably list out at least a handful of things that they find some sort of worth in, that they worship in a sense. Whether it's their kids and what their kids have been doing and their achievements and their accomplishments, things like that. Um, whether it's uh, a relationship that they're in, whether it's a TV show they watch or a celebrity that they follow or a sporting team that they associate themselves with. We enjoy and so we praise, we worship, we say that is worthy of our time and our energy and our affection. And a Christian, the Christian posture, a Christian stance in life is one of enjoying him, saying he's good. He's good and he's sweet and he's forgiving and loving. We worship him. Let us draw near, our hearts sprinkled clean, our bodies washed. And then verse 23, the second, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. The second stance created is loyalty. Loyalty. We could, we could use words like faith, uh, endurance, loyalty. That, that he, what happens when these truths meet an individual in a community is that they are joined to the leader. They say, we're, you're ours, or we're yours. We're following you. You are in charge. You are in control. We are loyal to you. We have faith in you. It's this kind of commitment. It's this unwavering commitment. This commitment that is steady through no matter what comes to who Jesus is. To what he's called us to do and what he's doing in the world. So that no matter what kind of comes our way in life or, or what jumps out around that corner, whatever questions and doubts um, and situations enter into our mind, our, our loyalty is not questioned. It doesn't come into play. So a Christian stance of loyalty becomes very apparent when someone gets cancer and someone loses their job and someone has a relative pass away. Because a, a Christian, a Christian, one who, who has met these, these truths, who's focusing on them, who sees them in all their glory, they're loyal, they have faith. I mean, you remember from, from chapter... 10 this uh, last week in, in verse 13 he quotes Psalm 110 that Jesus is at the right hand of God waiting that his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet we talked about that in Psalm 110 1 Corinthians 15 says the last enemy to be made his footstool will be death itself the Christian never doubts that his will will be accomplished that it's just a matter of time the countdown is on the clock is ticking until all that enslaves creation and battles and wars against his people is defeated, is gone, is wiped away from our memory. So we, we are loyal. So this, again, plays itself out in our lives in a few very distinct ways. People can look at and say, okay, I see that there. The first is obedience. We obey him. So when he tells us to do something, we do it. This is very primal to loyalty. President Obama issues some kind of executive order and the state of Texas like, we've got shotguns, so we're not going to do it. Um, it will be seen as an act of what? Disloyalty. We will be saying, no, we're not going to follow you, union, and there's going to be kind of a big problem there. The same thing when, when the person you're loyal to tells you to do something, you do it. You're in charge. And then also, I mean, you trust them. They're your leader. So we obey. And another one, we hope. We have this expectation that things will 
work out according to his will. No matter what it seems like in our own life or in the world around us, his enemies will be defeated. And then again, we have peace. We, we sleep at night. I think it would be a good way to say that. I mean, we, just, we sleep at night. No matter what kind of storm is around us, no matter what waves are washing over us, we lay our head down and say, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. This is a very, very distinct, very specific way that these work itself out in one's life. And then look at this third one here. I think it's going to be very important to kind of hold these other two together. Verse 24. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The third stance we're given is community. We, we live in a community. We live life together with other people, with those who have the same faith, the same goals, the same beliefs in Christ. We live life together with them. There's this community that's created. Lots of interesting things here in these two verses. First, notice in verse 24, there's this very intentional aspect to the church community. Let us consider how to stir each other up to love and good works. Let's, let's think about it. What is the most efficient, effective, powerful way that we can do this? That we can come together and grow each other up and follow Christ and hold fast and worship and do good works. That in two years and three years and four years and five years, we will be loving better and deeper and stronger and we'll be doing more good works, reaching our community in more powerful ways. So let's consider, let's, let's see, how do we do this? This is what we're doing with, with our prayer and fasting, with our time of going and evaluating our church. How do, how do we be the church? How do we do what we're supposed to do in the best way possible? And then he, he throws this in here. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. So you can tell that, that Hebrews was written by a pastor, right? He's going, hey, this thing doesn't work well if you don't come. <laughs> If you don't show up, it's, it's hard to do this. If you don't participate, if you don't join us in what we're doing here. Lots to, to think about here. Lots to, to think about. Notice, um, just for a minute, he says, Don't neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some. So apparently some were, were saying, for whatever reason, we don't need to meet. Maybe it's safer not to meet. Maybe they just had different priorities happening. But he says, don't neglect... Instead, but, that's an important word, but encourage each other. Notice those two things are held up in opposition. You either encourage each other and live life together and build each other up and follow Christ, or you what? You start neglecting. You start not going and attending and participating and knowing and living. So, for the past, I mean, I don't know, however you want to break down the generations. And so there's different ways you can do it. But the past few generations into the youngest around today, um, lots of different ideas and, and, and assumptions about church and family and life have changed. So, so, I mean, if you were to fast or rewind, actually, to like the 40s, the 50s, um, what you would find in kind of what our culture would be back then is church was pretty much like the, the anchor of the family. I mean, it, it was kind of expected. And so I don't like this term, but let's use it. Church people, okay? If you were a church person, I mean, you were at church. 
And in fact, I mean, you rewind enough, and you were at church like six days out of seven in the week, right? I mean, you were there Sunday, you were there Monday for a Bible study, you were there Tuesday for the men's fellowship, you were there Wednesday for your kids' youth group, you were there Thursday for the VBS Mother's Day Out thing. I mean, you were there all the time. It was very much a staple in kind of the family's life. But what's happened over the years is the shift, um, the pendulum has kind of swung to where now the culture of church that, that we're kind of dealing with in 2010 is where the priority has, has far shifted. So church no longer finds itself um, privileged up at the top, where if you're a church person, you're expected um, to be there. I mean, it's kind of the center of your week together. Now church has shifted very down, down low, past family and sports um, and, and friends and get-togethers and things like that. And so there are good things and bad things about all the shifts that have taken place in church. Um, and, and I'm not necessarily arguing for you know, being here five, seven days of the week. But here's what I'll say. Um, 23 years old, I've been doing this for two and a half, a little over two and a half years now, um, and I've seen this work itself out. Uh, you, you stop participating, you start, stop coming, um, and, and six months later, you, you're asking yourself, how did that happen? I mean, how did my family end up like that? How did that child start doing that? So, so we've got to be very clear here. I mean, church is not going to save you. Church is not going to save your kid. Attendance here doesn't promise you anything, or anywhere, really. But I think the scriptures are very clear that as much as you're not promised life and salvation in the church, you're definitely not promised it outside of the church. In fact, I think you're promised the opposite. <coughs> I think the scriptures can't imagine a Christian not involved in a local church. Well, despite what some would say, and despite kind of the attitude in our culture, I don't think it's there. You've got a, so, so we have a community, we're a family, you've got this image throughout the scriptures of the church as our mother, which I think is a very important image for us. Um, and it's created a lot of very interesting quotes uh, and doctrines throughout the year, this idea that the church is our mother. You may have heard some of them. One is, uh, if God is our father, then the church is our mother. Um, which has led some, again, to say, outside of the church, there is no salvation. You've kind of left the family. Um, again, I mean, this idea has led to all these things. I'm not saying or endorsing any of this. Um, one real famous one is, the church is a whore, but she's still my mother. This idea that the, the church is our mother. The church is just like a family where we grow together, where we're encouraged, where we meet together. And so here's the, the problem here. Here's the, the, I mean, when, when the pastor here talking to his congregation, remember, this is a sermon, a word of exhortation. He's writing to his congregation, uh, and he's saying, hey, I've heard that y'all aren't meeting together. I've heard that some of y'all think other things are more important than getting together and breaking bread and having communion and reading the scriptures and singing songs together, and that can't happen. He says, look, if y'all want to make it to the end, if y'all want to really stay loyal and worship, you're going to have to meet and encourage each other. And the, the tendency here is for that to be seen as an attendance play. So when I say, hey, I hope to see you there on Sunday, or um, you know, I, I just kind of put pressure on you to kind of show up more, to be more consistent, it's seen as um, Mike wants to stroke his ego by having seats filled. Well, that's not it at all. I could care less if you're here. I mean, I honestly could. It's, 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 practor it's, it's practical pastoral wisdom. That's, that's all it is. It's saying, hey, out of a love and a regard for you, it'll work better for you if you attend. It'll work better for you if you participate. 
It'll work better for you if you get involved in a home group and you get to know other people. It's not a numbers play. Maybe in some places it is, but it's not. And so, I mean, when you've got, I mean, I've just seen it over and over and over again. You you start dropping out the priorities shift to where if if you have something going on Saturday night or Sunday afternoon or or whenever, things start getting rearranged, all these different things. And and I would just say from the scriptures, I mean, be careful. Just be careful. He says, don't stop meeting together. There's something about liturgy, which is this routine, scheduled Christian worship that is so central to our faith. In fact, Christians have been doing it since the beginning. This idea where we come together and no matter how you feel, we're going to pray. Because when you're at your house and at your workplace, sometimes if you don't feel good or you're upset, you don't pray. I don't. I mean, sometimes, if we can just confess, sometimes we don't pray. But guess what? Every Sunday, I'm going to be here, and we're going to pray together. Liturgy. Scheduled worship. And we're going to come together, and we're going to open up the scriptures. Again, no matter how we feel, no matter if we want to or we don't want to, or if we're tired or if we have energy, we're going to do it. And there's something about that day in and day out, week in and week out, that will have this cumulative effect on your life, on your growth. He says, we, we've got a community here. Don't, don't neglect meeting together. Since we have a sacrifice, since we have a high priest, let us worship, let us be loyal, let us live life together. So let me wrap up with, with a couple questions for you guys. I'd like you to, to today... Take a, a second, maybe now as you just kind of think through it, or, or later today, block out some time this week, to lay your life up against these three stances, okay? Uh, so we can do this just kind of as a, a think experiment right now. Let's take the last seven days of our lives, so the last week. I know some of us don't have a good memory. I have a hard time remembering specific things, but I've got a pretty good idea of last week in my mind, holistically, what it was like, what I was like, the things that happened to me, where my heart was, um, so let's take this last week and let's walk through some questions. Were you worshiping? Last Monday, did you worship? Last Tuesday, did you worship? Last Wednesday, did you worship? If, if you really want to, if you're struggling to figure that out, let, let me give you two hints. Did you approach him? I mean, did you, did, were you praying and pressing in and seeking him? Were you enjoying him? Were you, were you just like, man, he's good? And today I'm just remembering that he saved me and he loved me. Today I, I saw this blessing that he sent into my life. Were you worshiping? Were you approaching? Were you enjoying? And let me ask you this. In the last seven days, were you loyal? Again, you, you want to maybe, how do I know? Well, were you obeying him? Were you, were you hoping? Did you have Peace. Were you living in community? I mean, were you growing with other people? Is, is that a priority on your list of things? He says, this is what happens when these truths, these deep, complex, profound truths meet a Christian, a Christian community. And so all over the world, there are these little local congregations like FC Cubed in Sugarland, Texas, 
that come together and we meet, we worship, we read the scriptures, when we eat together, when we pray and we fast, and we seek to love and to do good works together more and more, better and better, deeper and deeper. My prayer for you as an individual, as a family, would be that your life makes sense standing next to the gospel. And that it wouldn't make sense outside of God revealing himself and in the flesh of Jesus, God in the flesh, dying on a cross for your sins. Absorbing all the depth of darkness and evil that your sin had brought. Letting it work itself out in him. Saving you. Setting you on a mission. I pray that, that your life would make sense outside of that. And that us as a church, FCQ, in 2011, up into 2012, that, that we would look like a community who knows and sees and focuses and stays with these truths. That if we could somehow objectively get someone from the outside to look at what we do and the way we operate and the way we work, they would say, the only thing that could explain this is if something dramatic and radical had happened to them that changed all their priorities, that changed the way they spent their time and their money, that changed where their affections and their loyalty lied. If, if some of those things aren't lining up, what we need to do is go back to those senses. What are we not seeing in the gospel? What are we not seeing in the truth scripture gives us? Our lives are our reaction to that. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you again for our time this morning. I, I thank you for the scriptures that you've given us. Um, I just know in my own life, uh, fall short. Um, and so I, I thank you for your sacrifice and your, your, your grace over me, over us, uh, that perfection is not required, um, that you grow us like a child learning how to walk. I pray that we would be worshipers, we would be loyal, we would be a community. I pray that, that we would be faithful to you and to who you are. That as we um, participate in communion, we'd remember what we're doing. Remember the sacrifice of your son, the life that he's given us, and the mission and community that it calls us to. We love you. We need you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.